Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I'm your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today I am joined by a very exciting new thing, a couple, Dina and John. Hello. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome. Thank you. We're happy to be here. <laughs> We've never done anything like this before, so it's going to be interesting to have kind of two perspectives on the mystery at the same time trying to solve it, and we'll see if uh, bouncing ideas off each other you guys can do better Sure. than past weeks. Sounds good. So what is what is your like mystery experience through movies, TV, books, anything like that? Uh, well, I used to read a series called The Hardy Boys, which goes back quite a few years for those that are around my age. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> always enjoyed that. I was a big Columbo fan as well. Okay, nice. And I did watch some of the Agatha Christie series. Okay. Yeah, and for me, I love I love murder mysteries. Um, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, Agatha Christie. Yeah, any kind of murder mystery is uh, enjoyable for me. Great. So you guys are well set up to know the tropes of the mystery stuff. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so today we are doing a, another Agatha Christie book. It's called The Moving Finger, and it was published in 1943. And it's a... It's supposed to be a Miss Marple mystery, but she only comes into the story at the very end. So we won't get too much of her. Okay. Are you ready to get started? Yep. All set. Okay. So when we start the book, we're introduced to kind of our, what are going to be our main characters. And that are two siblings called Jerry and Joanna Burton. And we in, are introduced to them when they've received this like anonymous letter. And that's how they're, they're being, they're introducing the town that they've just moved to. And so what's happened is Jerry was a pilot and he was in kind of a plane crash of some kind that he survived, but sustained kind of big injuries from, which you assume is, they don't say so, but it's like he was paralyzed and now is kind of slowly relearning to walk and all that kind of thing. So to help them, help Jerry kind of recover from his injury, the doctors prescribed him that he should go live in a small town and kind of just enjoy small town life and not be stressed about anything. So that's what they've done. They've moved to this town called Limstock. And it's it's one of those towns where everyone knows everyone. So there's there's like one doctor, one lawyer, one banker, all that kind of thing, but very small. And so this is where we get just a couple of names of who's who we're going to get introduced to in the future. And so that's the doctors, Dr. Griffith, where there is going to be a vicar of some kind, um, one of the kind of richer people in town, Mr. Pye. And then the lady that they're actually renting this house from is called Miss Emily Barton. What was the doctor's name again? The doctor is Dr. Griffith. Okay. Owen Griffith. Okay. So the way they kind of got this house was the owner, Miss Emily Barton, she, it, you kind of get the sense she was not running out of money, but maybe had invested things wisely or something like that. And so wasn't able to pay taxes on the house. And so was renting it out to make that kind of money and was living like a small apartment in town instead. And so they get it from her. So we have to kind of get all that introduction of like the town, the people. We go back to the anonymous letter, which is the real juice. And it's accusing Jerry and Joanna of not being siblings. So it's all this. They don't ever read the letter to the to readers, but it's it's the idea of like someone 
saying how disgusting they are and it's so terrible that they think they can fake this to the whole town that they're not really siblings and living together and i guess it'd be a big scandal mm. but of course they are siblings and they know that so they think it's all a big joke and so they kind of do what they th feel like you're supposed to do when you get an anonymous letter which is burn it right away so they kind of have like a a little fun doing that so then the next morning dr griffith visits and he's been doing kind of Jerry had had gotten him to do like checkups on him. So he would go into London once a month to see his like actual doctor for his injury. But Dr. Griffith was kind of in the meantime, making sure everything was okay. And when he gets there, he says that they're not the first to get an anonymous letter. It's actually been going on for a, like quite some time now. And Dr. Griffith himself says he had got one. He says the lawyer in town, Mr. Symington had gotten one. And there's a few other people that he's heard of, but there could be a lot more because people might not want to talk about it. Are the anonymous letters, are they always sort of accusatory of something or are they different topics or? Yeah, it seems like they're, it seems like a lot of like sex scandal is the, is the idea. Okay. But we don't, they don't get in too much what the letters are about just yet. It kind of comes up later in the book. I see. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Griffiths is pretty worried about that, like this this idea in general of an honest leather because he's kind of seen cases of, of it before and he's just I guess more worried about the the letter writer and what kind of mental state they might be in and should they be able to catch them before they do any actual harm. So the next incident of the letter writer happens a week later when Jerry and Joanna Burton at home they have like one servant who lives with them whose name is Partridge and Partridge comes into the breakfast room and says that the daily girl who was I guess a girl who came in just during the day but didn't sleep there to help out she wasn't going to come in anymore because she had had an anonymous letter accusing her of the like quote unquote funny business with Jerry the owner like the man of the house and so she was just like I that's not respectable I'm not coming into work anymore type thing. Did you just repeat her name? The servant? Yes. Her name was Partridge. And the daily girl isn't given a name. The, the daily girl uh, has been saying that there's funny business with Jerry, and that's why she's not coming to work anymore? She had been sent an anonymous letter saying something to that extent. So even though it's not true, and Partridge knows this, Jerry knows this, it like looks bad in town for her to have received this letter and she doesn't want anyone to think that something could be going on even though oh, it's I... not. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Partridge, as she's telling Jerry this, kind of says this phrase which comes up throughout the novel and she goes, there's no smoke without fire. And she's kind of insinuating that they were better off without the Daily Girl because she's not sure what she's getting up to in the rest of the town, even if there's nothing going on with Jerry specifically. So then... Jerry goes for a walk into town, and on his way, he's met by this girl named Megan Hunter, and she's on her bike and kind of comes carooning in and almost falls off of it when she comes to say hi to him. And she's the stepdaughter of Mr. Symington. Mrs. Symington is her mother, and from a pre she's the daughter from like a previous marriage. And they kind of call her like a tall, lanky girl. And a lot of times she's addressed as like this young girl, but she's actually, she's 20. It's just kind of that, like the period of things she was kind of still considered because she was living at home. She didn't have a job, any of those kinds of things. She was considered to be a lot younger. So Jerry's, uh, he's able to, uh, he's healthy enough that he can walk into town and that type of thing. 
So right now, the stage that he's at is he's able to walk into town using like, I think crutches, but he, it would be too, this is like downhill. It'd be too tiring for him to walk uphill. So his sister, Joanna, they've organized for her to meet him later in the day to pick him up in the car. Right. So as there, Megan and Jerry are chatting as they continue to walk into town and you kind of get the sense that no one, no one in the family, the Simington family really cares for Megan. She's kind of left to her own devices and is pretty aimless in what she's doing. And if that's just like a, a sense that's building up that Jerry's getting about her. And then they get into town and this woman, Miss Amy, this, her name is, is spelt, it kind of looks French, Amy. But I think I'm just going to pronounce it Amy to make it easier. Okay. <laughs> so Miss Amy Griffith. So she's the doctor's sister and lives with him and kind of keeps house, house for him. She greets both of them. And Megan does not want to talk to her at all because Miss Amy always tries to get her to like do work because she does kind of just ride her bike around town and do nothing all day. So she right away runs off to get away from her. She doesn't want to have to talk to her at all. Okay. And... Amy Griffith is kind of one of those women that is on all the committees in town. She's super, super busy. She runs the girl guides. Like she's doing all this work all the time and kind of upkeeping the town. So that's her kind of personality of like just high energy. So they, I think, just have like a, a friendly chat meeting in town. And Jerry goes into Mr. Simmington's office, the lawyer's office, which is why you come into town. And he's kind of just, he's he's summing up Mr. Simmington. So this is just kind of, we're getting introduced to him. And he's he's kind of given um, the description of the acne of calm respectability. But he also is kind of described as like a good dad, but kind of boring. Like not, not very much excitingness going on there. Uh, and his kind of secretary woman is named Miss Ginch. And she's kind of just sitting at a typewriter. And she's described as like kind of... Um, her, like a hectic aura about her or just like a flurry of activity but she's not kind of not directed at anything kind of like aimless hectedness <laughs> okay so it's also said that I can't remember I think we found this out from Dr. Griffith earlier in the day but he had said that Mrs. Ginch the secretary she had actually she had had herself an anonymous letter and the letter had said that like they was accusing her of having an affair with Mr. Simmington. And so again, this kind of like sex scandal letter is what's being brought up. Right. So Jerry leaves the office. He's leaving. He's kind of going out into the street to see if Joanna's got there to pick him up yet. And as he comes out into the street, he describes, he sees like a goddess of a woman. And he kind of, he, he's describing this girl of having like a golden halo around her. Like she looks absolutely beautiful. And he like, drops his crutches as she's coming around the corner. But when she opens her mouth to speak, he kind of, all of that mysticalness about her disappears and she just becomes an ordinary girl again. So he's, he's saying that some, some people can do that when they, they don't, they don't look incredible, but when they speak, like their voice is incredible. But on, this is the other hand where she like looks amazing, but is just kind of normal when she talks. So this, this girl, Joanna at this moment kind of comes to pick him up and she goes, oh yeah, that's Mr. Simmington and Mrs. Simmington's nursery governess. So she's taking care of this, the, the Simmington's, I guess, of the second, like the second marriage. There are two young boys that are kind of um, not old enough to be in school yet. So they have this governess that takes care of them. So then 
Jerry, once Joanna picks up Jerry, they go to have tea with Mr. Pie. And so he's just another man, uh, kind of, I guess, bachelor in town that lives in one of the houses. And they really appreciate, he's like really big into buying antiques. And Joanna and Jerry both enjoy that kind of things as well. So he shows them around his house and kind of shows them all his antiques. And I think, that, so this, this book written in the 1940s, they describe him as being really feminine, like a feminine man, which I don't think is how, like that one, you wouldn't use that kind of description nowadays, but that's, that's what like Agatha Christie was writing him as, in, as like his character trope. And I'm not sure how to like make that more present day. Like what, what, how should I describe his character if he's only, he's like his sole thing is being described as feminine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good question. <laughs> well, I'm, is effeminate wrong or feminine features or um i don't know either i would say effeminate as well i guess is a term that's often used okay well so that's kind of how he's described anyways they have a nice tea with him and he he kind of talks to them a little bit about people in town so he tells them that miss emily barton the woman that they're renting their house from she was one of six daughters and the mother kind of kept them in that the house it's the same house that they're renting that had been passed down through the family and had kept all her daughters in the house. They were like not allowed to have friends. Uh, she didn't approve of a lot of things that they did. They were like really sheltered up until their like 60s. So when the mother had died, slowly all the daughters had died and Miss Emily Barton is the only one left of them. They're very Christian like that, that kind of family. So he's given that kind of description. The reason was is because he really likes he thinks that Miss Emily Barton also has antiques. And so he's very pleased with her house and says it's very beautiful. And so he kind of had gotten talking about her. And as they're leaving, they kind of get in their car to go away. Um, they look back and see Mr. Pye had gotten a letter. And as he's opening it up, like the facial expression that he gives while he's reading it, both Jerry and Joanna suspect that he's just gotten his first anonymous letter. But they don't know they're kind of leaving at this point. So they have no idea what it says and they can't confirm that it actually was an anonymous letter. So later that week, they go to play bridge with the Symingtons. And so we're kind of getting more of an introduction to Mrs. and Mr. Symington. And neither Jerry nor Joanna like the way Mrs. Symington treats her daughter, Megan. This is kind of where we get into like, she's 20 years old, yet her mother's talking about her like she's a young child and kind of treating her about the, the activities and things she can do and limiting her in that sense. So neither of them get good vibes from that. They're not too happy. So another week passes and Jerry comes home for a walk to find Megan sitting on his porch, asking if she can come to lunch with them. And she kind of talks to him about how she hates everybody and that no one in her family wants her. She's unwanted. She, she doesn't know what to do. She hates kind of living in that house with that. It's sad, but it's just to say it's kind of giving more description of kind of her feelings and what's going on in town. So that day passes and the next day, Jerry runs into Mrs. Dane Calthrope, who is the Reverend's wife. And she is she is super aware of what's going on in town. She kind of has this sense about her that she can, she can kind of give you like a look and like read everything about you and everything that's going on in your mind. But her personality is that she might know these things, but she doesn't act on them. She thinks that's just best to let kind of the world go around or everything to happen as it's supposed to happen without interference. But she's got, she's very aware. Caitlin, can you just give us the Reverend's wife's name? 
Her name was Mrs. Dane Calthrope. And so I think that's, <laughs> I just assume that she kind of takes on her, her husband's name. So we're not giving her like maiden name, um, not her maiden name, but like her given name. So just mm -hmm. Mrs. Dane Calthrope or Mrs. Calthrope. Yeah. And she's, she stopped him to ask him about like, what is, he's, she's going to kind of going, what is this nasty business going on with letters, anonymous letters that you've brought to town? And Jerry kind of goes, oh, well, what do you mean? They were already here. Like, people are getting anonymous letters before I arrived in town. And she hadn't known this. Mrs. Calthrop hadn't known this. And she's kind of saying that this is really disastrous. And that she really wishes that she had known who it was. And she kind of feels that she should know. Because she has that kind of personality where she can kind of tell what's going on with everyone in town. But she, she has no idea who this could be. Or, and sh or she never suspected that anything of this kind could happen. And then she, Jerry kind of asks her, oh, well, have you had any letters? And she goes, oh, yeah, like two to three of them already. And she says that they're very silly things. And that's what's so weird about them is that whoever's writing these could say so many things about her that they like might actually be the gossip in the town. But the things they're saying like are so untruthful they were saying that her husband's flirting with such and such and she's like I know my husband he doesn't flirt with anyone like that's not his style he's he's so lost in kind of the church and learning Latin that he's not thought focused on women at all right so then Miss Calthrop says that she's kind of afraid about what's going to happen because the fact that these letters aren't they don't seem to be so specific to the person it's this idea of like a blind hatred and so what if by chance this whoever's writing these letters by accident meet like hits the mark when they send a letter to someone what's going to happen if that like what what are the possibilities if someone gets a letter and it, it's truthful we get to the answer to that the next morning when the news begins to spread that missing Mrs. Symington had committed suicide after she had received an anonymous letter of her own. And so they're kind of saying, or the people in town are kind of saying, it must be that the letter was true if she felt she had to commit suicide because of it. So we're going to find out more about that. Do you have any thoughts about uh, anonymous letters? Well, it's interesting that Mrs. Symington commits suicide. I'd like to know what was in that letter <laughs> to cause that reaction. Yeah. Yeah, you, I guess sus suspicion-wise, um, at this point, I'm kind of thinking about Meg and Hunter because she seems to have a lot of anger, especially mm. towards the parents. So she kind mm -hmm. of has my attention right now. I yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have anybody in mind right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we're going to find more out about, about Mrs. Simington. Okay. So first, Joanna proposes to Jerry that they should ask Megan to come stay with them for a few days, which Jerry agrees. And kind of the reasoning behind that is that, like, the nursery gover governess, whose name is Elsie Holland, she'll take care of the kids, and Mrs. Mr. Simington can take care of himself, but who's going to take care of Megan? So they go over there. And when they get there, Dr. Griffith kind of greets them. And he, he confirms to them that it's no question of accident that there had, a scrap of paper had been found on the desk where in her handwriting was written, I can't go on. So they're pretty certain it was um, that it was suicide. And the anonymous letter that had been found kind of crumpled up in the fireplace by her desk in her room said it was accusing her that the youngest child, the youngest boy of the second marriage, Colin, 
was not actually Mr. Symington's son. So that's what the letter had said. And then he says that he's been treating Mrs. Symington for a nervous condition for a while, like she takes a lot of medication. And so he's kind of thinking that the possible shock that she took from this letter could have induced her to into like a state of panic, which is why she would have taken her life. And that it, it doesn't even mean that the letter is necessarily true. It just might mean that she thought that her husband would think it was true, even though it's not. And that shock made her kind of act. So they go into the house and find that Elsie Holland is taking particularly good care of Mr. Symington. She's being a ministering angel, <laughs> I think is a, a phrase they use throughout the book. Yeah. And when they ask Megan if she'd like to come with them to their house to stay for a while, she's ecstatic. She's more than happy to come with them. And it's kind of true. They find that no one has thought of her. She's kind of just sitting in her room. No one's taking care of her, even though it was her mother. And when she gets to their house, to Jerry and Joanna's house, she bursts into tears and they end up giving her a cocktail, which is her first cocktail ever in life. So I found this kind of funny. I assume in the 1940s, a cocktail means pretty much just alcohol. And when they give it to Megan, this 20-year-old girl who's never like drank alcohol before, they say that she gulps it down and asks for another. And I can't imagine drinking alcohol like the first time I drank hard liquor, being like, yes, I want more of this. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. Maybe their cocktails were different. Yeah. I, did. I wonder if they had mocktails back then, non alcoholic. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, Caitlin, is Elsie, El- uh, is she the uh, character that you described as a goddess of a woman, but she kind of has a. Yes. Norm- yeah. Norm- that nur- yeah. Okay. Yeah. That nursery governess, goddess of a woman, Elsie Holland, all the same person. Yeah. And do we know the age of Dr. Griffith and Mr. Symington? I don't think we're ever told, but I would guess Mr. Symington is maybe in his 40s, maybe late 30s. And Dr. Griffith, I want to say, is maybe early 30s. They kind of describe, they describe Owen Griffith, the doctor, as the only, like, quote-unquote eligible bachelor in the town. And so I think, to me, that makes it seem like he's probably younger. Okay. But no one's age is given. It's all all just guess. Except for Megan, I guess. Mm-hmm. We, we know hers. So they hold the inquest three days later, and Mrs. Symington, uh, they, pronounce, they pronounce the death as suicide, and they say that she was alone in the house for the afternoon, and that the death is presumed to be between 3 and 4 p.m. And then they say how, it was, how she was killed after the autopsy was done, that she had ingested cyanide that they kept in the potting shed out back to kill wasps with. So they think she'd just gone down to get it herself, come back up to her room, taken it with water, and and died. So after the inquest is over, the whole village has attended to see what's going to happen. And afterwards, everyone is kind of outside, and the phrase, no smoke without fire, is going around a lot. So that kind of same phrase popping back up. And... Amy says that she's known Dick Symington a very long time and that he is a jealous man. So there, there's kind of this insinuation that although Mr. Symington has said that he doesn't believe there's any bit of truth in the letter, people are, you know, making up their own minds about whether that's true or not. So some days later, Jerry is walking through the street and he meets Mr. Symington and he kind of goes... I think they don't. They didn't ask to take Meg into the house. They kind of just did, and so he, I think he says something along the lines of, "I hope it's not bothering. It's not bothered you at all." 
And Mr. Symington hasn't even noticed that Megan isn't there. Like, that's how out of it he is, possibly with his wife's death or something, like, whatever else. And so this kind of upsets Jerry a little bit, but he continues on his way. And as he continues to walk home, he meets up with Emily Barton. And she kind of insinuates that the letters were sent by God as, like, a judgment. And she's kind of saying this because she's like, what pleasure could anyone possibly get out of writing these letters? Like, who's that mad to do that? So Jerry continues home. And when he, get home, when he gets home, he's, he finds Joanna, who has just received a letter of her own. Because the first one had kind of been addressed to Jerry. And it's, I think it starts, they don't say what's in the letter, but it starts out, you painted trollop. I'm pronouncing that painted right. Trollop. Trollop. So not nice. Yeah, not a nice word. <laughs> no. And she goes to throw it in the fire as they had done with the first one, but Jerry kind of stops her because he's kind of realized at this point that like enough this has been happening to a point where the police should be involved. And so he pulls it kind of away before she can do that and saves it for the police. Which sure enough, the next day the county superintendent, whose name is Nash, he arrives to kind of start looking into these letters. And they found that all of the letters of the same type, the way it's done is the address on the envelope is typed out with a typewriter, but then the actual letter inside, um, letters have been cut out and then pasted onto a sheet to create the words. So are all the same. And then Jerry is asked by Nash if he can come down to the police station where they're having a conference with um, Mr. Symington, Dr. Griffith, this inspector that's been called into the town who's like a specialist on anonymous letters and his name is inspector graves and then jerry and inspector nash so the the five of those men are kind of discussing what could possibly be going on with this with this case and like who could be writing these letters so some of the things that inspector graves has found out through his kind of examination is that well first he says that these cases of anonymous letters are all the same he's kind of talking about a case they had up north in the county a few years back where it was like a schoolgirl who was writing them. And so he's saying the ones that are being written here, they're like, they have the same kind of, I guess, points about them or like the sex scandal-esque of about the letters. He also has found out that the cutout letters that are used in, in the messages come from a book that he thinks might be, must be from the 1830s based on the, I don't know, they don't say specifically, but maybe the ink, like the, the shape, that kind of thing. Right. And then they've also found out that the typewriter used to type the the on the envelopes is in the Women's Institute. So there's, I guess it's like a building just outside of town. I honestly don't know what Women's Institute means, but there's a typewriter that anyone can use in that building. And because of a couple of like discrepancies in the letters, they know that it must be that typewriter. Um, and then some other small things are that there's no fingerprints been found that are consistent on any of the letters. And they think that the woman must be educated. They're kind of saying it's definitely a woman. That's that's always in all the anonymous letter cases. That's who's written or that's who we found to be doing it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like a lady who's writing them, but like they, they, they know they're educated. Um, and so Mr. Simington reiterates kind of to the police that he's sure that the contents of the letter that was sent to his wife is absolutely false. And he's kind of saying, I didn't say that just for show yesterday. Like I meant that I'm sure that my, like, this is my son. And he's kind of saying, I really, like, I trust, I trust my wife and I trusted her then. I trust her now. Like I, I'm, I'm sure. 
So before Jerry leaves, he kind of remembers and tells the police because they've been asking that the other day when he had seen Miss Emily Barton in the street, she had said that she had not gotten a letter. And that's something that the police are looking for is some woman in town who hasn't received an anonymous letter herself. So he gets home from talking to the police and Mrs. Dean Calthrope, the reverend's wife, is sitting with Joanna and she's kind of saying that she's very surprised about the suicide because she felt that Mrs. Symington had a firm hold on life is how she describes it. She just would have thought that had she received a letter like that, she wouldn't, like, that's not what she would have done. But it kind of, she's saying it goes to show you don't necessarily know a person that well. And then she also, Mrs. Calthrope, she says that she feels bad for the woman who was doing this and that they must be violently unhappy. And that's like, that's to her the only possible way they could be doing something like this, to which Jerry doesn't agree with. He thinks he's not giving any sympathy to whoever could possibly be doing something like this. So when Jerry and Joanna come down to breakfast the next morning, they find Amy Griffith is on the doorstep talking to Megan. And so they go out to see what she wants. And she's looking to talk to Joanna and ask if Joanna has any vegetables in her garden that they, she could spare for the Red Cross stall. So I think there's like a, there's a stall in the main street where they sell vegetables to raise like as a fundraiser. And so as they're talking, Jerry gets a phone call, which she goes to answer. And it's actually for their servant, Partridge. It's a woman, or it's a girl on the other end that says her name is Agnes Waddell. And so Partridge asks for permission after the phone call's taken. She kind of says that was a, a girl that used to work in, in the house with her. And her name, like Ag this Agnes girl. And she was asking if Agnes could come to tea, like for her break later in the afternoon. And that Agnes was asking for advice. Like she just wanted to come talk to Partridge because she kind of saw Partridge as like a mother figure. Of course, Joanna and Jerry have no problem with that. So they say, for sure, go for it. And then they go out on the porch where they're kind of chatting a little bit. And Megan comes around to say that she thinks she must go home now. She's not going to stay with them anymore. So she packs up her bag and leaves. Do you guys have any questions about anything or thoughts? Well, that last point is interesting that Megan just all of a sudden <laughs> wants to go back home. So uh, that sort of came out of the blue. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting. Like you could see how it, it the story is a really uh, who done it because there's a number of characters and uh, there's major characters, there's minor characters. But at this point, I guess you're sort of looking for clues, and almost anyone could be a suspect right now. I would think. Yeah, yeah. I feel like nothing's pointing to anyone in particular yet. Well. There are a lot of characters and there's a lot of like plot lines and subplot lines and trying to keep those straight. It's a bit difficult, but my thought right now is the last thing I think Miss Symington would have done to kill herself would be to ingest cyanide. I don't know that mm -hmm. that's something mm -hmm. somebody would do to themselves. So I'm highly suspicious that this is... Um, this is this is not a suicide. Yeah. I also, everybody's gotten a letter except, well, we don't know exactly if, if everyone's gotten a letter, but Mr. Pye hasn't, it hasn't been confirmed that Mr. Pye got a letter, correct? It's, they suspected that. That's true. They yeah. suspected, but they don't have proof. Yeah. Just by the look on his face, they were looking at the, okay, that's all. Huh. That's where I'm at right now. Okay, good. So I'll keep going and check in later. Mm -hmm. So 
that afternoon, so Megan's Megan's just left them, and they just, they end up they had been invited to Miss Emily Barton for tea at her kind of she was she's in like a flat in the kind of main village area, whereas the the house that they're in is a little bit outside of town. And when they get there, they think they're a little bit early, but at the same time. And Miss Emily ends up being a little bit late and she kind of comes in all flustered and says she had gone to one place to get cakes for their tea and they weren't good enough so she had had to go somewhere else. And while they're waiting they're kind of wondering kind of what you were saying why did Megan leave so abruptly like that felt strange and they're wondering if Amy when when they had come downstairs for breakfast Megan and Amy had been outside on the doorstep talking and so they're wondering did Amy say anything to her to make her feel like she had to leave? So, uh, sorry, so em- this is Miss Emily comes in at this point, and so they kind of just ch- chat about local drama, about Mrs. Symington's death, but Miss Emily doesn't want to talk about the letters. They kind of try to move on from that, and they talk about how amazing Miss Amy Griffith's energy is, like how it's so impressive that she's able to could do so much about around town. They talk about Mr. Pye and how he's had a lot of strange visitors to his house, they don't describe what that means. That's that's all they say, strange visitors. And then Miss Emily talks about how she's always wanted to go on a cruise. And when Jerry and Joanna kind of say like, oh, you should totally go on a cruise. That'd be so good for her. She immediately kind of like clams up and goes, oh, no, 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 I, I couldn't. I couldn't. It'd be way too much energy. It'd be too expensive. And it'd be so confusing with, with all like the foreign currencies and things like that. I, I couldn't do it on my own. So that night, Joanna and Jerry have gone home for dinner and Joanna is asking Partridge about her tea party because she was the girl Agnes was supposed to come over. And Partridge kind of says, oh, well, Agnes never showed up. Like she didn't come. And she's kind of upset about it because she's saying, first off, Agnes never should have used the telephone to call because it's not like it, it looks bad for servants to be using their master's telephone. Um, and so Jerry and Joanna don't care at all. They think it's no problem but Partridge the servant is more kind of like the old order and thinks that things are done a certain way and they're not done another way. So then they start to talk about the anonymous letters Jerry and Joanna and they realize that it had been exactly a week from the the day of the suicide and as they're kind of saying this Jerry gets a queer feeling and so he's asking the reason so he's kind of saying oh like last week when Mrs. Semington died the whole house was empty because it was the servant's day out. And that's like typical. Um, every like servants working in a house one day a week would be like their afternoon out and they might go home to their family or go out on a date or whatever. And so the fact that it's a week from then makes sense because Agnes was asking to come to tea and that makes sense because it would have been her day out so she could have gone out to do whatever she wanted. And this whole this whole thing that he's thinking about is going, why would... And where was Agnes Waddell in service? And Partridge kind of answers, oh, she was at the Symington's house. And so Jerry asked Partridge about it, about like, well, when should Agnes be home? Like, would Agnes be home now? Can I call and see what's what's wrong? And she goes, yeah, they're like, they have a curfew of 10 p.m. It's after that now. So he calls the Symington's and finds that Agnes isn't home. And so now Jerry is kind of officially worried. He's He's worried about, has something happened to Agnes? So as he falls asleep, he's kind of, there's like phrases dancing around his head and he's kind of like, you know, kind of going in and out of like a dream state. And he keeps hearing the phrase like no smoke without fire and then like a scrap of paper. And then he kind of, he drifts into thinking about when he was in the war and things like that and goes to bed. 
So at 7.30 a.m., Jerry is awakened by the phone ringing and he goes downstairs and hears Megan on the other end sobbing and she's asking him to come down to the house at once, which he does. And he gets there pretty quickly. And when he gets there, Megan kind of runs out of the house. Clearly, she's been watching for them. And she jumps into his, his arms and kind of says that she found the body under the stairs. So Jerry brings Megan back into the house and he leaves her with Rose, who was the cook. And he got, goes to find Superintendent Nash, who was already there because the police have been called. And it's uh, he's kind of confirmed that it's the body of Agnes Waddell, the servant that was found under the stairs. Um, and Superintendent Nash asks him, he's like, it must, there must have been something going on. Do you know if Agnes told your servant Partridge, like anything specific? Did Partridge know anything about what Agnes wanted to talk to her about? And Jerry kind of goes, no, he doesn't think so, but obviously they'll have to ask her to be certain. And it's confirmed that it was both maids day out. And so how that normally happened is the reason that they had two servants, but they had both their day out was on the same day to kind of accommodate that they would set out like a cold, a cold dinner so that they did, like it was easy to serve, I guess. So Rose, she usually took the bus to see her family that lived in like another town. And so because of that, she would have left at 225 and left behind Agnes who would have been left alone to kind of clear away the lunch dishes, which was normal. And then Simington left for work around 235 while the nursery governess, Elsie Holland, she helped Agnes clear the lunch dishes. And then Elsie left herself taking the, she took the children out. They went out every afternoon and they left around 245. And then Megan says that she had left on her bike around 250 just out for kind of like a bike ride. And so then they get that what normally would happen is Agnes would finish clearing away the lunch dishes and maybe set, set the table for dinner. And she would leave the house around um, somewhere between three and 3.30. But when she was found, like her body was found under the stairs, she was still in her cap and apron, like her, her work dress. And so there's, there, it's reason to believe that she never actually left the house the day before. So Dr. Griffith gives that he, because the body has been there for so long, he can't give a very specific time of death, but he, he says it's somewhere between 2 p.m. and 4.30 p.m. as like his official verdict. Um, and then he says the way that she was killed is she, yeah, sorry? I was going to ask, how was she killed? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> she was, oh, I'm just about to say that. Mm -hmm. So she was hit on the back of the head with some kind of blunt object that's kind of stunned her. But the way she actually was killed was she was she was stabbed through the base of the skull which a, with a kitchen skewer. It's kind of a nasty death. So then the police kind of taught, they tell, or Superintendent Nash tells Jerry that the police know something. And it's that the day that Mrs. Symington died, a week earlier, Agnes has had a, had a fight with her boyfriend, which meant that she'd actually come back to the house. So she had been in the house. The house hadn't been empty when Mrs. Symington died. And so they imagine that she probably would have come, had this fight with her boyfriend, come back home, and then wanted to like wait by the window to see if he came over to apologize. And so they think that Agnes probably saw whoever delivered the anonymous letter to Mrs. Symington because they knew it wasn't delivered by the, the post that day. It was delivered by hand. And so they think it was probably some unsuspecting person like the reason she didn't realize right away and why it took her a whole week is that it was someone totally normal who could have been there that day. But after she thought more about it, she kind of realized or started to think that something was suspicious. So 
So then they ask who could have known about that phone call that Agnes, when Agnes called Partridge to ask us for her advice. And so Jerry kind of thinks, well, Amy had been on the doorstep, so she could have overheard the phone call. And obviously Partridge knew if Amy could have, if Amy, if Amy had heard, the whole village would know by now because that's the way villages work is like information like that spreads like wildfire. So Superintendent Nash thinks that probably whoever this lady was, she came up to the house well, like after everyone had left. And then as Agnes opened the door, she like knocked her on the back of the head. Maybe she like gave her a card or like gave her a package. And as Agnes was turning around to set it down, she hit her on the back of the head. So then Nash and Jerry go together to interview Elsie Holland, the nursery governess, and she kind of confirmed she'd helped clear up the lunch dishes with Agnes, and then she had gone out. The boys and her were going fishing that day, but she had forgotten the tackle box, which she didn't need to come into the house to get because it was just around back in the shed, but she had come back about five minutes after leaving, so she would have been there around 2.50. Who was that? It was Elsie. Elsie was at the shed at 2.50? Yes, the shed behind the house. And this is the, the day before, so the day that Agnes was killed. Then Elsie kind of talks about the week before when Mrs. Simington had committed suicide. And she says that same thing, everything was as usual then too. She had taken the boys out for the afternoon, which is again, like that's, she did that every day. Um, and that Mrs. Simington was kind of prone to napping after lunch. There was some medication that she had to take, which I think made her sleepy. And the police ask Elsie, would Elsie bring up the mail to Mrs. Simington? And she kind of goes, no, not usually. Elsie would bring it into the house. But if Mrs. Simington wanted anything particular, she'd come down and get it herself during the afternoon. And so what had happened the week before is she had gotten home kind of similar time to Mr. Simington and put on tea, which was her custom because it was the servant's day out. And so when Mr. Simington had gotten home, he had called up to his wife as usual and but that she had not answered and so when he had gotten up there they had immediately called the police and then she also admits that she has not gotten an anonymous letter herself and superintendent nash kind of pushes her on the subject and is like you can tell us like i know these things can be embarrassing but we really need to know about it but she she de declines and says that it's no she's not gotten a letter and the way she's seeing it or the way she's saying it, Superintendent Nash is inclined to believe her. He thinks that she's telling the truth. Elsie did not receive a letter. No, she has not received an anonymous letter. And then Jerry kind of says, well, that makes two people that we're sure of that haven't had letters. And Superintendent Nash kind of smiles to himself and he says, no, that's not true. Miss Emily Barton had received a letter. Her parlor maid had actually told the police about them. I think she'd had a couple, not just one. And the reason that she hadn't wanted to tell Jerry anything is like delicacy because these things, these letters are so kind of awful that she wouldn't have wanted to say anything to Jerry. And so that's why, that's why she told him she hadn't received one. She was lying. So Jerry offers for Megan to stay with him and Joanna again, because again, this has just been so awful, two deaths, but Megan refuses. And she kind of says that this is her house and she, she needs to stay in her house is her reasoning. So Jerry kind of goes into town and he because he wants to see like what's the gossip like, what's going around town. And first he kind of meets up with Dr. Griffith, who looks really tired. And he says that he's had some really difficult cases lately. And then his sister comes up 
And on the other hand, she's like, again, full of energy, which is her like same personality. And her like kind of response to this is like, oh my goodness, a murder in Limstock? Like we never have murders. This is our first murder ever. Like she's almost excited about it. Her opinion, Amy Griffith, is that it must have been a boyfriend that did it to Agnes Waddell. And so Jerry asks her, he's not liking her attitude of this being exciting. So he kind of wants to like, get her back in some way. And so he asks her if it, if she had told Megan to return home and Amy admits that it was her. And then she kind of says, but I had to because everyone around the town tongues were wagging. And Jerry is kind of like, what do you mean? And Amy says, haven't you heard the talk around town is that Elsie Holland is trying to become Mrs. Symington number two. And it doesn't look good for a girl like that to be living in a house with Mr. Symington. So I told Megan she had to go home to make things look more proper. After talking to her, Jerry walks on to the church where Mr. Pye and Miss Emily Barton are kind of talking to themselves. And Mr. Pye confirms to Jerry that Miss Amy Griffith had told him that Agnes was coming to tea with Partridge. So that kind of confirms that Amy Griffith had overheard the telephone call and also had told people about it. So the idea that anyone could know. And Emily asks, Emily's kind of wondering, is it possible that the two deaths are connected? To which Mr. Pye kind of goes, oh, good idea, Emily. Like, that's, that's smart. Yeah, are they connected somehow? So the police, the police are pretty sure they are, but it's this idea of like, news spreading around the village is no one's kind of quite sure what's gone on yet. So Emily leaves, Miss Emily leaves, and Mr. Pye confesses to Jerry that his opinion on the whole thing is that whoever must be doing this must be completely mad. Which, I don't think that's surprising. I feel like that's the same thing on everyone's mind. But anyways, lots of developments. So then Mr. Pye leaves, and as he's gone, the Reverend Dane Calthrop comes out of the house, or sorry, comes out of the church, and he kind of is going, isn't this crazy? Like, we've had a murder. Um, what a terrible thing. And then he kind of, like, almost leans in to whisper to Jerry and goes, have you heard the rumor about the anonymous letters? And so Jerry's kind of laughing to himself, going, of course, the Reverend is the last person to hear that after, like, months of anonymous letters, that yes, they are happening. <laughs> so then no one else was kind of walking about. There was no one to talk to. So Jerry goes home, and he finds that Joanna has had... Uh, like kind of a chat or scene, Dr. Griffith, and that he had by accident left, he had come to like show her pictures. There's kind of a sense that Joanna and Dr. Griffith are kind of falling in love a little bit. So he's kind of kind of come to show her pictures of medical things. And one of them had fallen while they were sitting outside. And so I guess this is like old tiny pictures, but because it was out in the sun, the edges were starting to curl. And so to kind of save it, he brings, Jerry brings the picture inside and goes to put it in like a heavy book to flatten back out the edges. And as he does that, he like pulls down one of the biggest books on the shelf. And when he opens it up, he sees that some of the pages have cut out, have been cut out. And sure enough, the book was written in 1840. So he's kind of thinking this must be the book that those cut out letters are coming from that are like being put together as words in the anonymous letters. And so he's wondering who could have cut them out? Like, was it, this is Emily, Miss Emily Barton's house. Like, did she cut out the pages? Could it have been Partridge? Or could it have, like, it, it could have been anyone if it was just someone who came to tea one day and was sitting in the room and kind of took their opportunity. 
So he brings it immediately to the police and they find that the only fingerprints on the book are his own, which makes sense because he had pulled it down, and Partridge's, which kind of means nothing like because she dusts that room all the time. So the fact that she would have touched the book kind of doesn't mean too much. And then the police kind of say that they've narrowed, they're kind of chatting a little bit more about the case and Superintendent Nash says that they've narrowed down the case to just a handful of women. And so they have Miss Ginch, who was the typist or secretary for Mr. Simmington at his office. Then they have, sorry, I, I've written this name down, but I don't even know who it is. Miss Gilchrist. Who's that? I don't recall that name. Right? Yeah, I haven't mentioned that person before. I think I meant to write here. It's, I think it's supposed to be Miss Griff, Griffith, and I've just written it wrong. Okay, <laughs> okay so they have Miss Ginch, who's the secretary slash typist at... Yeah. Mr. Simmington's lawyer's office. Then they have Miss Griffith, or who's the doctor's sister. Miss Barton, Miss Emily Barton, the old owner of the house. Then Mrs. Dane Calthrop, the reverend's wife. And they have Mr. Pye on the list. And they're including him, even though they're looking for women, because they, they again, have described him as, like, his, his characteristic as being feminine. So they put him on the list. And then... Before he can kind of finish telling on the list, Dr. Griffith walks in and they start chatting about something else. But he has said that there's two more women that he just hasn't listed. So it, it's kind of open to interpretation about who those women could be. And the reason that they've picked out these women is they're all people that aren't like don't have alibis for both times of death. And or, so that being would have been able to hand deliver the letter to Mrs. Symington and would have been able to kill Agnes Woodell because they didn't have alibis. Sorry, so Dr. Griffith comes in and Nash asks him what was prescribed to Mrs. Symington. And this kind of goes to what you were saying earlier, Dina, where they're wondering if anything that she was prescribed, if she had taken like an overdose, could it be fatal? And they're just wondering because same thing that you were asking, like cyanide feels like a really strong thing to take to commit suicide. And they're just wondering if she had, if she was prescribed enough medication that she could overdose on it, why would, like, it would, it would be more of a pleasant death. Mm-hmm. What, what Dr. Griffith says is that that's true. What he, what she was prescribed, she'd have to take like 25 capsules in over to order, in order to overdose. It would be really strong. And then he also says is that it wouldn't be certain. Like it would be more of a pleasant death, but cyanide is more effective. Like it would be more certain. So if she might overdose but not die if she took the other thing. So then Jerry gets home, he kind of leaves the police station, and Joanna has left a note behind, she's not there anymore, that says, if Dr. Griffith rings up, I can't go on Tuesday, but could manage Wednesday or Thursday. So he's kind of read, this is like, it's a note written on like the, te- I guess you'd have like a, a pad by the telephone to take notes on, which People might have had up until like a decade ago, but now no one has home phones anymore that they use very frequently. You just text someone. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so Jerry goes in, he's read this note, he goes into the drawing room and he kind of sits on a one of the armchairs to like close his eyes and think about what's going on. And so the first thing he's thinking about are who were those two suspects that Superintendent Nash didn't mention? Who could those possibly be? Like who who else is there? And then he also kind of starts to think about that outbreak that had been mentioned before about anonymous letters up north in the county where they had actually found a schoolgirl who had been 
writing the letters. And this the county that they ran was actually a county that Dr. Griffith used to work in. And so he's wondering, is it possible that it wasn't really the schoolgirl and it was actually Amy Griffith who had written the letters and just wasn't caught? And then he thinks about something about the message was bothering him. And he's he's just thinking about the message and he's kind of thinking in his head, like, no smoke without fire. And then he's thinking, like, smoke scream. And he's thinking, no, 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 that was the war. Like, that's different. And then suddenly he's just on the main street and Elsie Holland, the nursery governess, governess, is walking down the street wearing a wedding dress and she's getting married to Dr. Griffith and Mr. the Reverend Dane Calthrope is like giving the sermon in Latin. And then all of a sudden, Mrs. Dane Calthrope is yelling, it has to be stopped, I tell you, it has to be stopped. And then he suddenly wakes up. And so it's kind of like, oh my gosh, he was, he was dreaming. He'd fallen asleep in the armchair. But Mrs. Dane Calthrop actually is in the room and she is saying, it has to be stopped, I tell you. So he tells her, I'm sorry, I was sleeping. I didn't hear what you said. And she repeats herself. And she's kind of saying, this, this can't go on anymore. Like this wickedness is so terrible. It's terrible for the town. It's doing terrible things. And she tells him that she's going to call in an expert and then she leaves. Like she's very energetic. <laughs> One person I think it might be, but I don't have a motive for that person. Mm. Who who are you thinking? Um, Mr. Pie. Mm. And why are you thinking it's him? Uh, just because he's uh, he's a bachelor and he's big into antiques. Mm -hmm. He got a letter, but he had I don't think it was it wasn't confirmed that it was an anonymous letter. It's just his facial expression was shock or surprise but i don't know that it was i think people assume that it was a letter i don't think it may have been a letter it might have been something else i see yeah so he could have been like faking it his reaction even just his reaction and then and then there's another person who was at a certain <coughs> place and time and had access to the shed and you know all that kind of stuff yeah true right so i don't know like and that person has a motive because they wanted to be, uh, Elsie wanted to be Mr. Symington number two. So that to me is high on the uh, motive list. But Yeah, it is important to be looking for yeah, who has motive. But even, I guess there's some theory that if this person is just mad, then they don't need to have motive because they're just doing this for the fun of it or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Where were we? <laughs> Oh, right. So he's woken up for his kind of like his fever dream. Yeah. Yeah. So Mrs. Jane Calthrop leaves on that note of saying that she's going to call in an expert, which I'll I'll say, because I said this was going to be a Miss Marple, who do you think could be the expert? Miss <laughs> <laughs> Marple. <laughs> Woo! So we'll meet her soon. So the next, the kind of week after Agnes's death is like everyone is feeling super apprehensive in town. And it's kind of that idea of like neighbor looking upon neighbor. No one knows who did it. Everyone might suspect someone, but it's all these different people that are being suspected. So Jerry and Joanna go to tea at the vicarage with the, 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 the reverend and his wife. And they actually have a guest who's visiting them. And it's an elderly woman who's just sitting there knitting. And who is it? Only... Miss Marple. And so Jerry and Joanna have no idea who Miss Marple is. They've never heard of her. But we know as the readers that she is a very special sleuth who 
has a knack for solving murder mysteries. So she's very excited to kind of hear everything about the about the crime. And she's kind of prefacing it by going like, stuff stuff like this never happens. Like the, this is never happens in a small town. You must excuse my excitement. Like it's it's uh it's only natural when you when you've never heard anything like this. And so Jerry kind of is they describing what's what's been happening and he says the closest he's come to being able to guess or to figure out who the murderer is was that dream he had the other day where he thinks the solution had kind of come to him but it was all so hazy and in dream form so he kind of repeats to her what what had happened in his dream or kind of like the bits of information that had come to him and miss marple says to him that he needs to have more confidence in himself and she also thinks it's interesting that Elsie Holland hasn't had a letter yet. That's very interesting to her. That's something that she thinks is an important point. So a few days later, Jerry is driving home from a night in Exhampton. He had been, I don't know, maybe just like to do some shopping. Exhampton's like a bigger village near the town of Limstock where they're living. And he's finding that like he's having problems with his car lights, like they're kind of cutting out. And so he pulls over just outside of town to see what's going on. And he happens to stop right by the Women's Institute, which is where that typewriter was found, or that it was found that the typewriter was used to type the anonymous letter envelopes. And as he's kind of got out to look at look at the lights, he feels like he hears something near the building. And so he kind of creeps over to check out what's going on. And as he's creeping into one of the windows, because he fancies he's heard something within the Women's Institute, as he kind of enters the window, he's accosted by Superintendent Nash, who gets really upset with him because the police had been staking out the Women's Institute. They're hoping that whoever it is is going to keep writing the letters and therefore will have to come to the Women's Institute to use the typewriter. And they're saying that Jerry kind of ruined everything. Like he's he's come in. Um, and so basically they, they kind of send him off saying, don't do that again. And he leaves. And when he gets to his car... He finds Megan is just standing there and she says that she's just out for a walk. She does it all the time. She likes walking at night because no one's around to bother you. She doesn't want to have to talk to anyone. So he drives her home and when he gets home, they find that Mr. Simington is kind of out on the doorstep, like peering out and he's asking, is that Megan? And he kind of like saying like, you really shouldn't be out this late. Elsie and I were worried about you. So then Jerry kind of describes himself as going mad on the following day and he says that he was so he was supposed to go up to london for his monthly checkup that he said he would get for his plane crash injury he went up to the doctor once a month and so he is on his way to the railway station he would take the train into london instead of driving because it was a long way and he sees megan walking along the street so he pulls up and lets her in and drives her with him to the train station just for company and as he gets in the train station, he this is where he says he's not sure what comes over him, but he ends up pulling Megan into the train car with him and then buying her a ticket to come to London with him. And his reasoning for that is that he feels he he feels that the clothes she wears are so drab and boring and he wants her to look better. And so he brings her to his sister, Joanna Stylist, in London and tells the stylist basically carte blanche, get her all the new clothes, like make her look beautiful. And so around this time during the day is when he realizes that he's he might be in love with Megan, <laughs> or he might really like her. There's been a lot more talk of this throughout the book. I just, I felt like I had to cut something out of the story, and so I, I didn't talk too much about their kind of, their relationship. So when he gets home, when him and Megan get home, he's talking with Joanna, and 
he realized that not just does he love Megan, but he wants to marry her. And so the following day, he goes and proposes to her, and she says no. She says no. I'm sorry. I don't think I. I don't think I love you. I. I don't think I can marry someone I don't love. Sad. Very <laughs> sad. So he's kind of for the rest of the day. He's all caught up in his own business. He's not. He's not worried about the anonymous letters or anything like that. And so he's kind of surprised when Nash calls Superintendent Nash calls him up the next morning and says we've got her. And what he means by that is that they've caught the writer of the anonymous letters. And so Jerry immediately heads down to the police station to hear more about this because it will, he's not sure if his phone line is secure, if anyone can overhear him. And Nash shows him the anonymous letter that Elsie Holland, the nursery governess, had gotten that morning. And I'll read it to you. The anonymous letter said it was all typewritten. So this time, not just the envelope, but the letter itself were typewritten. It wasn't used, um, written up using like the cutout letters and pasted together. And it says, it's no use thinking you're going to step into a dead woman's shoes. The whole town is laughing at you. Get out now. Soon it will be too late. This is a warning. Remember what happened to that other girl. So before I go any farther, would either of you like to take a guess about who this letter was written by? Can you just repeat what it, the gist of the letter again? The gist of the letter was accusing Elsie Holland of trying to replace Mrs. Symington as Mr. Symington's wife. And the letter is kind of telling her, you need to get out of town. Um, everyone, everyone, the talk of the town is you. So, so up until now, Elsie hasn't gotten a letter. This is, this is it now. She's, she's gotten a letter. Yeah. This is her first letter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, I, I'm thinking still of possibly the daughter, Megan is a suspect. Okay. Even Elsie herself, who could have, just written a letter to herself just to uh, yeah. throw throw people off. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, like, but the other minor characters, like I've, I've always been a little suspicious of uh, Partridge, who's kind of a minor character, but she, you know, on the, on, on the servant's days off, it's, mm -hmm. it seems that a lot of action seems to happen. So you start thinking about, well, who are, who are possible uh, suspects given that. So I know she's a very minor character and, and, you know, it may not be nothing, but mm -hmm. anyway, that's sort of what I'm thinking at this point. Okay. So who they end up announcing is the, or Superintendent Nash says that wrote this letter was Amy Griffith. And Jerry is blown away. He had kind of not really suspected this, but they've gotten a warrant for her arrest. And that afternoon they go to the Griffith household, where it ends up the Symingtons are there to tea. So Megan's there, Elsie uh, Holland is there, and Mr. Symington are there. And they ask Amy to come into another room, and they show her the letter and say that she was seen typing the letter at the Women's Institute the night before, and she was seen to have posted the letter. And so, until this point, Amy's kind of going, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, those, that, I didn't write those pack of letters. Like, I didn't do any of this. Right. But then she kind of breaks down and Mr. Symington kind of comes into the room to say, you need a lawyer, like I can represent you, to which Amy says, no, not you. And so he, he ends up calling in a lawyer from another town over. So Amy, uh, she's the doc Dr. Griffith's sister. Was Dr. Griffith the one that you had mentioned that lived in the other town uh, where the letters were circulating as well? Yes. Okay. And was Amy in the town with him at that point? Uh, yes, Amy would have been living with him. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah, okay. 
So this has, I mean, all been crazy, crazy, crazy. And the next day, obviously, the village is alive with gossip about going. I had always seen a glint in her eye. I had always known she was a murderer, like that whole thing, which is like, oh, no, you didn't. You didn't know anything. You're just making that up now. And Nash informs Jerry that they have found, they just found the cut up sheets of paper that were cut out from that book that was in Miss Emily Barton's house. And those cut out pages were found under Amy Griffith and Owen Griffith's stairs in their house. So when the vicarage gets the news, I think um, Jerry, Jerry had gone to talk to them. Miss Marple says she keeps going on and on about how it isn't true. It isn't true. And so now I'd like to stop again and say, I think we can believe Miss Marple because this is her, her mystery or she is the detective. So going on the assumption that Amy Griffith is not a murderer or is not the anonymous letter writer, would you like to take another guess? If this is, sorry, sorry if this is confusing. Amy Griffith <laughs> is not the letter writer? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, she's not the letter writer. So I, I would still go back to my other suspects, either uh, either the daughter, Megan, or possibly uh, Amy, or not Amy, uh, who's the... Who's Elsie. Elsie. <laughs> yeah, like, Elsie. I think it's Elsie, Elsie, and I think... Elsie, okay. Until all of this stuff started happening she never got a letter so all of a sudden she got a letter but I think she wrote her own letter to herself mm. so that's why there's the discrepancy between like the pages that ended up in the Griffiths and the fact or what they were police were thinking were the typewriters in the women's institute mm -hmm. yeah so I think Elsie would know this so I'm not sure if her letter is the same as the other letters it could be different and it could, and she's trying to set up Amy Griffith. I see. So Amy Griffith was caught by the police. Like they actually did see her typing that one letter that was sent to Elsie Holland. Mm -hmm. So, and Miss Marple kind of agrees with this too, is that, yeah, Amy Griffith wrote that last letter, but she didn't write all the original ones. Okay. So the, the idea that it could be Elsie Holland agreed, like it still stands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and Emily Barton too. I don't know if that's uh, going out on a limb, but did she, did she get a letter? Mm -hmm. Did she say that she got a letter? Yeah. So she, she lied to Jerry saying that she hadn't gotten a letter, but her um, parlor maid who kind of works for her yeah. had turned in some letters to the police. So she, Miss Emily Barton had gotten some letters. Right. Okay. What do you, what do you think her motive would be? I don't know. It's, it's, she's, she's, uh, She's older, as you, you said. I think you mentioned she can't pay pay taxes. She's renting the house out because she can't. Uh, mm. So it might be money reasons. Possibly, yeah. That mm. she's uh, she's up to something uh, up to something that way. Mm -hmm. I, I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm still with I'm still with Elsie and Mister Pie. Okay, the two yeah. of them. And Partridge too, for whatever reason. <laughs> She seems suspicious, but anyway. Okay. <laughs> I know what you mean. I feel like I, when I'm reading these books, it's the same thing. If I can't, I feel like I can't give one person. There's always a couple people that I'm suspicious of. Right. I'm also cognizant of the title, Smoke and Fire. No, where, there, where there's no smoke, no, mm -hmm. no smoke without fire. Yeah. And uh, the moving finger. So yeah. So when I hear smoke and fire, I think of Jerry and Joanna Burton because they burnt their first letter for some reason. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They set their first letter on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's all I got right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'll keep telling the story. I Good guesses. If you have any, like, um, anything I'm saying where something else clicks with you and you want to make a change, please stop me. Mm-hmm. Sure. Or not. We'll see. <laughs> so... Miss uh, Jerry sees Miss Marple again later that day, but this time she's talking to Megan, and Jerry Jerry's glad because he would have wanted to talk to Megan. He hasn't seen her since he had like proposed to her a couple days ago. But before he can get there, Megan kind of hurries away, and he's about to go after her when Miss Marple kind of stops him and says, "No, don't go after her." And then she says she needs to keep courage intact. So kind of giving the impression that if you talk to her, she might lose the courage that she has for what she has to do. Mm-hmm. And then he catches sight of Miss Marple again later in the day. This time she's coming out of the police station. So something is going on there. So Jerry goes home, but he can't shake the feeling of what's going on. And he's still trying to think of who were those other two suspects that the police like didn't mention that one time. And it kind of catches him. He starts to think, could it have been? No. But could it have been Elsie Holland? Like, she hasn't been mentioned yet. Is it possible that it's her? So he goes, he he wants to, like, make sure Megan's all right. He can't, kind of can't stop himself. And so in the evening, he goes to the Symington's household. And he kind of just wants to, like, see what's going on. So he goes up. He doesn't go up to the front door. He, like, goes around the house and peers in at one of the windows where there's light streaming out of the drawing room. And the curtains are not completely closed, so he can look in. And he sees... Mr. Symington and Elsie Holland are both sitting in the room and he kind of describes it as like a very warm, kind of like homely thing. Like it seems like they're very uh, comfortable sitting with each other. And Elsie is, she's doing some patchwork and he's just, I think, working at the desk and they're chatting. And then suddenly Megan comes to the door and she says to Mr. Symington, I'd like to speak to you alone. And then she kind of glares at Elsie Holland, who gets up and leaves. And so Megan kind of goes up to the desk and she goes, says to Mr. Symington, I know no one ever wanted to tell me who my real father was, but I figured it out on my own. I know he's a blackmailer and that's what he's in jail for. And so I think, I think things like that travel in the family. And so I'd like to ask you for a sum of money. And Mr. Symington's kind of like, what is going on? Like he's kind of saying your grandmother had left you money when she died, which you'll inherit in a few months when you turn 21. Like, what do you mean you need money? And then she says, there's something I know that I think you'd like me to keep quiet on. I saw you putting, switching the pills of my mom's catch it the day of her murder. And I'd like some money to keep quiet on it. And so Mr. Symington goes to his checkbook and he goes, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm sure I can give you some money. And he writes her a check and she leaves. And Jerry, at this point, who's looking in the window, he wants to go in to save Megan and to do something. And he kind of gives a start, but it's held back. And it turns out Superintendent Nash has been standing at the window the whole time because this is a setup. And so they pull him back and they kind of explain to Jerry everything that's going on. And Jerry, with a lot of persuasion, is allowed to be involved with what's what they're going to do. So they both climb up the stairs and they kind of hide in the shadow of one of the, the stairwells and they wait and watch. And at a certain point during the night, they hear Mr. Symington creep out of his room and into Megan's room, where he picks her up and he carries her downstairs to the kitchen. And he opens the oven door, puts her head in it, and turns the gas oven on. And this is when the police kind of burst out, 
arrest Mr. Symington and save Megan. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty drastic. <laughs> so can you see what's happening here? Or should I explain more? Uh, Symington's trying to get rid of Megan. And and uh, yeah. you said it was a setup, correct? Yeah. So do you think Megan was working with Detective Nat? Yes, correct. Yeah, you got it. Mm-hmm. So I don't think Symington would have paid her or put her head in the oven if he weren't guilty of something. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like he's uh, he's jumped to the top of the list now. <laughs> <laughs> it was his, his wife being murdered and then him now with Elsie. Um, Elsie. Yeah. It's uh, he's not he's looking pretty suspicious. <laughs> yeah, so we get we get Miss Marple luckily to explain it to everyone a few days later. They're all sitting in the vicarage with Jerry Joanna Um, the Reverend and his wife and Miss Marple. And she's explaining how, what the reason she thinks that Jerry had kind of known all along what was going on, just couldn't fit the clues together. And that's why she had said he didn't have enough confidence in himself is that he'd clued in on some of the really important facts. And that was that it was said that Mrs. Symington wrote her suicide note on a scrap of paper that just said, like it was a scrap that said, I can't go on. And he was kind of saying the reason Jerry, like you, you, the reason you thought that that message, not only the suicide message, but the message that Joanna had left on the notepad by the telephone that day is because Joanna had said a very similar thing. I can't go on Tuesday, but I could do Wednesday or Thursday. And so she kind of, when she heard that thought to herself, that it would be such an easy thing for Mrs. Mr. Symington to see a note like that by the phone and rip out the scrap, I can't go on, to save for later and use as a suicide note. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other thing that she says was important was the idea of there's no smoke without fire. And the idea of a smoke screen or kind of a, distra- a distraction was that if you, if you accept that none of the letters were real in the sense that everyone got anonymous letters, but none of them were about real things, if, if the letters weren't there at all, what actually happened? And all that happened was Mrs. Symington died. And when you think that Mrs. Symington died, who could have gotten, wanted to get rid of her? And that would be Mr. Symington, who wanted to marry a younger woman, Elsie Holland. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Agree. And the, the, I guess and then you start, I mean, I, Elsie would seem like a prime suspect because every, everything seemed to lean towards uh, the clues were that it was a woman. Yes. Some of the items that were described and, uh, and, and it kind of throws you off, I guess. And, and I guess she would be a prime suspect because she was in, she seemed to like him. So I was suspicious of the cyanide got me right away because I I don't see a woman ingesting cyanide to die. It's not a good way to go. And then um, you talked a little bit more about um, the servants not being there that day, but Elsie knew, and I'm sure Mr. Symington as well, knew Mrs. Symington's habits. And so her tea was at a certain time. And I can almost bet that that cyanide was in that tea that she drank. And, and you're right. Everything else sort of, I feel everything else is smokescreen. So they're trying to get you to think it's this person, but it's really not that person. Exactly. Yeah. Just like one question, like who would have written the letters just for the heck of it? So that was that was part of this like smokescreen idea where Mr. Symington did write the letters. And okay. why it was so 
why Miss Marple was kind of so convinced that it wasn't a woman is because she's kind of saying a woman would have known the real gossip in town. Like all those letters, a woman would have actually been able to pinpoint actual gossip or yeah. uh, kind of yeah. s- stories about these people. Whereas Mr. Simington didn't care. Yeah. Like he didn't know. Yeah. It was just all sex scandals and stuff and accusations of affairs yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's interesting. He had done it entirely to make it as the smokescreen to show, to kind of draw attention away from mm-hmm. if, if Mrs. Simington was found to just have died, they, they wouldn't have assumed suicide right away. Yeah. They would have looked into it and who's the first person they would have looked at the husband. Whereas with the letters, it kind of drew all this attention away. And so no, no suspicion fell on him. Yeah, exactly. So when we're hearing about all these characters and all of their like background and everything, you sh- things that come to the surface are motives, right? So Mr. Pie didn't have a motive, but the n- one of the number one motives is money and love, right? Yeah, you got it. So Emily Barton would have been money, but there's nothing to really suggest that he- she had any. But it's clear that Simington and Elsie were having an affair. Yeah. And uh, obviously Mr. Nash knew that too, Detective Nash, because he was trying to set it up. But yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, so it's a neat one. It's- yeah, all the prime suspects were, according to Nash, were were uh, were female, and and it's interesting that the only male suspect was the effeminate character, Mister Pie. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's I guess that's that's part of the smokescreen. Yeah, <laughs> I know they do a really good job, or Agatha Christie does a really good job of drawing your attention somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. A little frustrating. <laughs> well, that's the whole art, though. That's the art form, right? Yeah. No, of course. No, it's amazing. Do you have any other questions about the story that maybe I haven't completely answered? No, no you, I think you, you, you did an excellent job going through it all, and we've got like ten pages worth of notes here. <laughs> yeah. No. It Makes good. sense. <laughs> it is. It is a lot. Yeah. No, you did a great job. Uh, telling the story and uh it was very intriguing with with the characters and uh and the building of the characters good well i'm so glad thank you guys so much for coming on and doing the story with me oh thanks caitlin we enjoyed it you're very welcome thank you Woo. so if you would like to hear any more mysteries mystery podcasts you can check out tuesday night mystery club anywhere you listen to podcasts or follow me on Instagram at Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Or if you want to suggest something or ask a question, you can email me at Tuesday Night Mystery Club at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye.